You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. I wish we could have examined that belief of his more closely. It seems illogical for a sun worshiper to develop a philosophy of total brotherhood. Sun worship is usually a primitive superstition religion. I'm afraid you have it all wrong, Mr. Spock, all of you. I've been monitoring some of their old-style radio waves. The Empire spokesman trying to ridicule their religion. But he couldn't. Don't you understand? It's not the sun up in the sky. It's the son of God. Caesar. And Christ. They had them both. And the word is spreading only now. Philosophy of total love and total brotherhood. It will replace their imperial Rome, but it will happen in their 20th century. Wouldn't it be something to watch, to be a part of? To see it happen all over again. I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do You should know by now that man in the Bugatti He's a member of the Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, your source for art, culture, politics, and religion. Serious conversation that tries not to take itself too seriously. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes and leave a nice review. You can also like our Facebook page for more content and conversation. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. You like to do whatever, baby, cause I, oh, I don't care. Yeah, yeah. Hello, everyone. Danny Anderson here. I'm an assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. And I'm very grateful that you downloaded another episode of the Sectarian Review podcast. In this episode, we're going to be continuing our little mini-series about science fiction. As you may remember, in the last show, Carter Stepper and I talked about sci-fi and social critique, social conscience. Today, I'm joined by Megan Von Bergen, another first-time contributor to talk about science fiction and specifically theology. Hello, Megan. Uh, thanks for joining us today. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks. Good Good to hear you. Do you want to, uh, so we obviously don't know you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I teach English at Emmaus Bible College in Northeast Iowa. I like to joke that I am the English department. We're a pretty small college, um, but, but a strong one. I teach all the writing classes. I teach our freshman introduction to literature course. And then occasionally I get, I get a chance to teach an English elective. And in the spring of 2015, that elective was a course I team taught with a colleague of mine, Dr. Steve Sanchez, in science fiction through the lens of theology. And so that kind of sparked um, an interest in, in how these, these two things fit together. Uh, that's great. And I know that you contacted the show about doing a show about sci-fi, sort of parallel to Carter. And so you guys both contacted me almost around the same time. And so I, I put this two-step thing together. I'm really grateful for that. This sounds great. Um, and I really can't wait to pick your brain here about uh, sci-fi and some of the more philosophical aspects of it. As you know, last week we kind of uh, 
stayed in the material world, mm -hmm. uh, in the world yeah. of politics and such, uh, in philosophy or a little bit of philosophy. But this year, we're, th this week, we're going to go straight uh, existential or theological. Excuse me. Um, is Northeast? Are you near Luther College? Um. <laughs> it's in Decorah, Iowa. Is I believe. Okay. That's... Yeah, we're about an hour, hour and a half south of Decorah. Okay. Um, if you know where Wisconsin and Illinois and Iowa all meet. That's where we are. Okay. The reason I ask is uh, the Book of Nature's uh, Todd Pedler. He teaches at the at Luther College in uh, Decorah, oh, yeah. Iowa. Nice. Uh -huh. so, so when you said uh, Northeast Iowa, that's where I went. So, um, well, I'm pretty excited about this one. So let's just kind of jump right in. Um, like most of our best shows, this one was not my idea. You contacted the show and suggested it. So what was it that inspired the idea for you? Um. As far as the interest in, in science fiction and theology, it started a couple of years back when I read Mary Doria Russell's novel, The Sparrow, um, which is uh, it's a first contact novel. Humankind makes contact um, with, a, with a couple of alien races in Alpha Centauri. And um, the... Uh, one of the main characters is a Jesuit priest, and The Sparrow is a very compelling novel for me. And then I started noticing um, that this is a bit of a trend with, with other science fiction books, that they contain a lot of uh, religious motifs, um, such as a, a priest, or um, as in The Sparrow, or as in Canticle for Leibowitz. Uh, with a whole abbey full of priests um, for some of the main characters. Sometimes it's a, a sacred book. Um, the man in the high castle is perpetually, they're, they're always referencing the I Ching. Um, mm. You've got a messiah figure. It doesn't even need to be a Christian messiah figure. Dune is really interesting to me because it has a messiah figure that, is is very much from the Islamic tradition in many ways. Um, you've got a lot of religious works that um, speak to the creator and our created nature. Um, Asimov's Foundation in Earth does this a little bit, um, especially with the character Phalum. Another excellent one in that tradition is Werner Vinge's A Fire Upon the Deep, um, which is which is really well well done. So um, sometimes you will go as as far as entire created religions. Um, this would be David Weber's Off Armageddon Reef and the entire Safehold series. I, I don't consider that super well done. I know a lot of people might disagree with me, um, but it is it does play into that tradition of of religious motifs in what is often seen as a very secular and very scientific genre. Um, so this this contrast is interesting to me. Um, and we talked uh, in the last show with Carter. Carter and I talked about some of the things you mentioned. I want to kind of um, back up a little bit with uh, Man in the High Castle and the Messiah figure. Um, we didn't necessarily talk about that aspect of that book. We talked about um, that book a little bit, but uh, it kind of escaped us, I think, that the uh, the Man in the High Castle is a bit of a messiah uh, with this sort of sacred text uh, that uh, and follows that people that draw people to him. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about that aspect of that book? 
I can take a gander at it. I will confess that Dick is a relatively recent discovery for me. Um, and so I'm not as strong in uh, The Man in the High Castle, which I've read once, as I am in, in some of these other novels, which I've taught. Um, I actually hadn't been concentrating on The Man in the High Castle as a Messiah figure and until you mentioned something. It was the, the idea of the sacred text that we or, mm. organize our lives around that caught my attention. And there's essentially two sacred texts. There's the I Ching, and then there is the, oh gosh, now, what is it called? The book that the man in the high castle wrote. Yes, um, and in the TV series, it's a it's a video uh, that they're watching. So, or it's a, a video? It's a film, I'm sorry. I haven't seen the TV, TV it, series. It, I'm, yeah, it's I'm a one film. of those books before the movie uh, people, <laughs> and so I haven't, I read the book, and I haven't gotten around to seeing the movie yet, yeah. TV show. Yeah, it's an old film uh, that they find. So like a real, real odd. film. So yeah, um, I'm not sure I can see it working as well. Please don't <laughs> put that in there. No, no, it's in there. We can't take it out. Actually, I haven't seen. I've only seen the first episode of the show, so uh, I okay. have. I can't tell if it's a good or not. But um, okay, well, the I Ching. That's another. Um, I'd forgotten that aspect of that book, and it is. It is a sacred text that, for the Japanese characters, it essentially guides every decision they make, they consult the, the I Ching. Uh, it's been quite a while since right. I've read that book. And I remember reading that for an undergraduate, uh, in my undergraduate degree, we were talking about the fact that it's kind of difficult to un see how the Japanese could have won that war. They were so passive <laughs> in their approach to everything. They just sort of consulted the book and let everything uh, just could sort of take its own uh, course. And so that was one of the, the, the things I remember talking about with that book. Um, um, so you do teach this class, though. You do teach a class on theology. and uh... um, Right. Yes, I do. Because we have a very uh, – because we're not a large college, it's not a course that's offered um, frequently. Um, so far, it's just been once. But, yes, um, we taught the course. We taught, um, we taught the War of the Worlds. We taught Foundation and Earth. We taught um, – the Moon is a Harsh Mistress right. by Heinlein. That was that was really excellent. We taught Canticle for Leibowitz, mm -hmm. and we taught The Sparrow. Okay. Um, and then we threw in a few short stories and um, two films, Contact and The Matrix. Mm. Um, yeah, the Matrix. The Matrix came up in the last episode a little bit, actually, um, particularly in its relationship to the. Um, kind of false reality that Dick offers in a book like Ubik. We talked um, quite a bit about that. Um, okay. But um, we're, I, want to, I want to talk a little bit about your pedagogical approach to this in a minute. But I think we should define the kind of science fiction that we're talking about here. We are not necessarily – we we did a whole sort of genealogy of science fiction in the last episode. And I think you want to kind of focus us a bit more this time. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, there's a couple of things that I uh, that I probably should make clear from the outset. Um, first is is what I mean when I say um, science fiction through the lens of faith or, or religious science fiction, um, because a lot of times this gets confused with um, fiction that I'm very much not talking about. I had this. I volunteered at the library some this summer and I made up a list of books 
recommendations um, from this genre. And I, I was trying to think about what to uh, call this list of book recommendations, the title to put on the top. And um, I went around and I asked some people, okay, what do you think of when I say uh, religious science fiction or um, something like that? And they said, oh, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia or <laughs> even even worse, um, maybe those apocalyptic books like Left Behind. And No, 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 um, <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> if you like those books, well, I like the Chronicles of Narnia. If you like Left Behind, more power to you. I'm not going there. I would say less power to you if you like those books. No. <laughs> <laughs> but go right ahead. You are more forthright <laughs> than I. Um, but I was – that's that's not what I'm spe speaking about. I am, like I mentioned early, earlier, just really interested in the way that um, books that are often written by agnostics or atheists mm – -hmm. Atheists, atheist people um, will draw very heavily on religious themes and religious motifs. Um, so Asimov was not a believer, and yet his work features these religious themes. Um, Walter Miller in Canticle for Leibowitz was a, a lapsed Catholic um, and became agnostic towards the end of his life. Uh, but still integrates this very, very deeply in there. The other thing that I should probably say is that um, I'm not really focused on uh, generic action films in space or um, the kind of science fiction that draws on uh, comic books or inspires fandoms. Um, you know, a lot of these are, are really fun and really good. I enjoy... Um, I enjoy the Star Trek reboots, for instance, but in in seeking to create entertainment, um, they often don't en engage with these themes mm. at at a deeper level. Um, and sometimes the books that are are really good at engaging with these themes are not necessarily the ones that are most enjoyable. So I would enjoyable in the sense of entertaining, right? So. Um, did I enjoy reading The Man in the High Castle? Um, yes. Did it engage me intellectually? Yes. Was it a fun book? No. <laughs> uh, it's just not, gee, I'm going to sit down for 30 minutes and relax with this. So I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about fun reading, but more intellectually rigorous. Absolutely. And that, that, I think that makes this a perfect fit for the show. Um, I, I can concur with what you're saying. I taught another Philip K. Book, Dick book. Um, Ubik uh, last year in a class I taught about conspiracy theories, and um, that cl that book is quite difficult um, to a kind of understand the world he's constructing. There's that level of difficulty, mm -hmm. but it's also philosophically very difficult. And I we read it I think very quickly after reading Kafka's uh, The Trial, and mm -hmm. there was uh, I think they were still in a bit of a Kafka haze maybe before they got into that book, but they did quite well with it. Um, uh, you know, comparatively speaking, it could have gone much worse than it did. But it was it was a bit of a slog for a lot of them. Uh, there's a lot of kind of just sort of emotional detail and um, an inner life going on in those books, and it makes it uh, it's not necessarily a plot driven enterprise. I, I guess I probably want to clarify a little bit. A lot of these books can be really really fun to yeah. read. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed the sparrow um i thoroughly enjoyed vinge's uh fire upon the deep it has some of the best world building uh plot building um some aliens that are are truly alien that 
that I've encountered. And so it's really a joy to read. Um, the alien, the aliens are really alien. It's a little bit like a novel set in the Star Wars cantina ah. um, oh, with, with that kind of diversity. And so it really is fun. Um, well, let's hope Disney but, does that actually. <laughs> they only, let's hope Disney does that actually. They're doing oh, all these sort of side stories for Star Wars. I would love to see a movie just about the cantina. Uh, that would be yeah. <laughs> but in any idea. case, it's, the point is that it's not just fun. Um, right. Fun is not the the primary goal. Um, That's actually a really good segue, I think, into uh, my next question about pedagogy, um, particularly in the context that you're talking about with the. Um, uh, the fact that many of these writers are not Orthodox Christian, they're sort of atheist or agnostic writers. Do you want to talk about the um, experience of teaching this kind of material to particularly uh, students at a Bible college in your case? Oh my, that, yeah, there's a, there's a lot. Let me start with the objectionable content. Um, at a, at a Bible college, at a at a religious college where uh, most of our students are believers, mm-hmm. um, we do select novels with um, attention to the content and um, attention to the students. Grade level isn't the right word for it, but like their their intellectual development and their academic development. Um, yeah, so for instance, um, I'm, I'm not going to teach anything with um, particularly offensive content and in intro to literature mm-hmm. since I get such a diversity of students in that class and they're still just learning to, to interpret literature. I don't, I don't want to lob anything right. um, too difficult at them. Um, with science fiction through the lens of theology, you know, these are upperclassmen, mostly juniors and seniors, and so they're able to handle things that are a little bit um, grimmer, so to speak. Sure. Um, and and have a, a extended critical discussion about them, but you know, we still did have a a conversation about the content of the novels that we were including. Um, the one that that really sparked that conversation was the sparrow, um, which closes with a, a scene of sexual violence and it's integral. It's, it's not graphically portrayed. It happens off stage, so to speak. Um, but it's still there. You, you know, what's happened. Um, and you have to deal with it and it's integral to the plot too. Um, the novel raises questions of, theodicy of the problem of pain how do we deal um with suffering and and that hinges on this particular scene and my my colleague and i really went back and forth and said is is this going to be um too much for for our students and i i grew up more conservatively and um pretty much believed that uh reading a book um that contained sin uh, made me sinful by default um, so I remember reading uh, 1984 for the first time and the characters have an affair mm-hmm. and that was really icky to um, teenage me like I got very hung up on it um, when I was a teenager I read 1984 again when I was about 30 and appreciated it much more then <laughs> um, but but 
I that attitude kind of exemplifies where um, a lot of people in certain circles of Christianity come from, which is the idea that we're contaminated from from the outside. And and then I got to college, and I had a a teacher at college. I took an entire course on Milton, and uh, my teacher taught us Milton's Areopagitica. Um, which actively encourages us to engage with um, objectionable content, Mm -hmm. specifically objectionable worldview. You know, Milton is writing to um, the English government and he's saying uh, you shouldn't, um, you know, be pre-approving books before you publish them. You should publish them regardless of how well they agree with your faith and and let people um, deal with them. Um, I cannot praise a, a fugitive and cloistered virtue, unexercised and unbreathed, that never sallies out and sees its adversary, but slinks out of the race where that immortal garland is to be run for, not without dust and heat. And the idea is that um, if you want your your faith and your thinking to be strong, you have to deal with challenges to it. And that includes... Um, challenges of worldview when somebody disagrees with you and uh, challenges of objectionable content. How can we say that God is good when these bad things happen? Yeah. And so the book becomes a book in which bad things happen um, becomes a, a safe space, so to speak um, in, mm. in the good sense, not in the restrictive sense Yeah. to, to, deal with these questions before we encounter them in the real world um a little bit like a a training ground um, if you will um and so it can help us prepare intellectually for answering these questions but also prepare emotionally you know when we address the sparrow um and it's objectionable content there we also talked about how we would respond to somebody in this situation and so it can also uh, uh, train the heart in that way um you know that said even as a teacher i'm not sure that it's my place to no i'm certain that it's not my place to um force somebody into um reading something that that is actively doing them harm. You know, if they were to come and say, I can't read XYZ book because it's, you know, um, doing this thing to me, it's having this effect on me, then then we would find a workaround. Um, they wouldn't get the benefit from the book, but I'm not going to, to force them to read it in hopes they would get some some benefit. There were books in my graduate work, particularly that I simply avoided. Um, Well, I got to, if you don't mind me jumping in right here, I feel like this is a really interesting um, perspective on a a bigger cultural question about trigger warnings. And you've mentioned safe spaces that is ongoing in, in secular colleges as well. And so I think that what you're, you know, providing us here is a really kind of, interesting way that a, um, a, a you know a faith-driven um, kind of education can actually deal with these same kind of difficult questions and, and that was really and as you were talking about the the book being a safe space what came to my mind was uh, actually that scene those scenes in the matrix where there's this like 
training programs that they get loaded into where they could fight and 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 oh, all yeah. that and, uh -huh. and it doesn't i mean they can sort of practice things that are challenging in a uh, in a safe space before entering back into the matrix uh and, and i think that, that that's a uh, an interesting i hadn't thought about that aspect of the movie until you were talking about it. and the way you described it made me think of that um and so that was we have a on the docket a show about you know safe spaces and trigger warnings and 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 education and i think this is a really um you've just provided i think a really interesting way to to think about it um so uh, when yeah you, i would ahead. i would clarify there that i used the term before i recalled all its um <laughs> deeply loaded <laughs> connotations i actually um with one of my writing classes last uh, fall, I we had a very extended conversation um, about safe spaces and their their place or or lack thereof in a well-run university. And my students did some really good thinking on that. Um, and you know, I would just say there are safe spaces and there are safe spaces, right? Our our classrooms and our homes and our friendships should be places that are quote unquote safe for us to tackle hard topics. Yeah. And like you point out in the Matrix, we need a in a, a place to practice these kind of things. Sadly, the term has been co opted to to mean not places where we can discuss freely, but places where we can't discuss lest we hurt someone. And that's a whole other topic. And I leave that to your <laughs> a later your episode. Podcast, well, so. the way this show works, I don't know if you followed it long, is one topic generally spins off into another one. And so uh, this is a, a perfect opportunity for that uh, on down the road. So at the, so that was a wonderful discussion about, um, how challenging literature might function at a, at a Christian in a Christian college environment specifically. What are some like goals that you you have for your students with specifically science fiction with the fiction that you taught? Like, what are some things um, from the because the class was overtly about theology? What are some like objectives that you tried to get across with, uh, get to with your students? Are you asking about the like the themes that we tackled or are you asking more about like the way my students thinking changed? Um, we can go either way. Let's start with the, the top, the, the themes that you tackled first, and then we can maybe talk a little bit about the change you saw uh, in, in the thinking. Some of the themes we organized the course around, um, around a series of questions. And we, we did that because of the nature of, of how science fiction works as a genre. I can get into that a little bit later. Um, but questions like, um, do we need to be saved? What do we need to be saved from? How are we saved? Um, that was War of the Worlds. Mm. Um, questions like, you know, is there a, a grand plan? Who is running the show, so to speak? Um, you know, how should human society be organized? Uh, that would be foundation and earth. Um, what is our responsibility to the society? Should we revolt against a bad society? Um, was the moon is a harsh mistress? Um, with Canticle for Leibowitz, we ended up addressing questions um, such as, as what is knowledge? Um, what are the consequences of our actions? Um, 
what moves us to take action and, and, you know, what does that lead to? And then uh, with the sparrow, we talked about where is God in, in suffering. And then we, we added on um, short stories as in the films as they fit into those those um, themes uh we didn't we only just barely scratched the surface of course um a couple of questions dealt with by other other texts that we didn't get a chance to teach um vinge's novel a fire upon the deep asks whether we can overcome our created nature whether we can be better than we were created to be it also asks how we deal with um outsiders with people that are different than us, with people that may be uh, dangerous. I read it when, during perhaps the first wave of concern over um, massive immigration from from the Middle East. Yeah. And that was, it was really, really resonant um, with that. Um, it, you know, we, like we talked about earlier, uh, Man in the High Castle uh, talks about what can we take from sacred texts? How how do they guide us? How should they guide us? Um, uh, A Fire Upon the Deep also asks about the nature of evil, um, whether God is benevolent or after his own interests. Um, well, are we naturally evil or good? Well, let's pause on that that question: whether God is benevolent or acts in just in His own selfish interests. How does how did your student how do students handle a question like that um, at a particularly a Bible college? I think that's a very interesting uh, um, question. That is an interesting question that we did not get to in that class because, <laughs> like I said, it was a uh, it was a novel that we didn't teach. Um, our students did have to handle a number of questions that, uh, and this perhaps gets at our other question about how it changed their method of thinking. Yeah, um, they did have to handle uh, a number of questions that we are that were uncomfortable from from a religious point of view, um, and they they handled them well. You know, on the one hand, they stuck to their guns in terms of orthodoxy. So, you know, we, we read The Star, which is by Isaac Asimov. I, I think we'll get to it a little bit later. Arthur C. Uh, Clarke? Is yeah, that Arthur C. Clarke? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. I, I misspoke. <laughs> two pillars of <laughs> early science fiction, and I always... If you're going to confuse two people, it's probably wrong. those two people, so it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, we read the star and, um, I went back and I checked my notes, uh, while I was preparing for this episode and I was really impressed with the quality of their thought. Um, they came up with some good orthodox answers, but also answers that recognize the complexity of suffering, you know, pointing out that, um, a lot of times we're not going to be able to reconcile the reality of suffering and God's goodness, um, um, intellectually here on this earth, um, pointing out that the the greatest suffering of all was when um, Jesus Christ, the the innocent, um, perfect Son of God, um, died unjustly, um, and so they they were able to articulate a number of good answers to that and kind of cast their faith back on God in that sense and and recognize that. It was unanswerable. On the other hand, um, we also had some difficult questions that 
very much um, a challenge to them to unravel problems in their thinking. Mm -hmm. um, Ken Bain in What the Best College Teachers Do uh, talks about how really excellent teaching is defined by um, taking somebody's mental model of the world and pointing out the flaws in it um, and filling those flaws. Or perhaps you, you reverse uh, the flawed mental model of the world. That's what, mm. what good teaching does. And science fiction does that a little bit. Um, you know, we, we read uh, Foundation and Earth, right? And one of the questions that one raises is how should human beings organize themselves as a society more individualistically or more collectively? And um, especially my colleague, um, Dr. Sanchez, pointed out um, the, the novel leans more towards collectively than individualistic. And that's very uncomfortable for us as as Americans mm -hmm. and to a, a large degree, our students had conflated um, their Christian faith with this American worldview that says we, we stand alone on our own two feet. We are, we are individuals. And so we had to unravel a little bit of that um, devotion to an American world view um, and the glory of the individual in order to, and used foundation and earth to point them back towards the more the, the stress on community yeah. and your responsibility to the community with, within faith. So, well, in the foundation books in general, I mean, this is a community over a vast amount of time. I mean, mm -hmm. this is Harry. Uh, we talked about foundation the first book in uh, the last episode, and this Harry Selden. Um, establishes this foundation to sort of rebuild a civilization that he knows is going to collapse in a hundred years, and uh, yeah. and he sort of plans ahead tens of thousands of years into the future, um, and so it is an interesting um, uh, example. I, no, I've not read Foundation and Earth. Um, it is an interesting yeah. example of like collectivity because this is a sort of collective process that takes place mm -hmm. past an individual lifetime, and yet it's punctuated by like these like superheroes who are like the caretakers of this mission over mm -hmm. at a given time. And so it's a really interesting kind of balance of that. Yeah. Foundation on earth is a little bit different in that, um, you know, it, it takes place thousands of years after foundation. And, um, one of the characters is, is essentially, um, She's from a planet where everybody on the planet is is linked. Uh, they're a single collective consciousness, mm. and she is kind of an an offshoot of that consciousness. And she walks around and interacts with them like a normal human being. But you're you're continually reminded that um, yeah, she's part of this organic whole. And what's interesting to me about that, I actually uh, took one of my students off campus. Um, midway through the course and she'd never seen a Star Trek film. And, um, and so I showed her, I believe first contact, um, the one where, where Picard goes back in time and they, they run into the Borg. Um, because it's interesting. Um, American movie making will often show the collective society very much like the Borg. Right. Uh, it's a, 
a loss of the individual. It, it's something to be feared. Um, Asimov pushes back against that and says, hey, look, here is this collective society, and they are a lot healthier and a lot happier than these other characters who show up in the novel and are, are individualistic to the point of essentially being being monks. Yeah. Uh, they live very solitary lives. And so you can see our our American worldview coming through in the way that we we portray the collective versus the way it might actually be. Um, as believers, we are probably called to a, a collective and not not a collective like the Borg, but something closer to that mm. than what we're used to as Westerners who who resist claims on our time and yeah. energy. I don't know if you've ever seen the original or any, I guess, version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, <laughs> the um, the uh, the original is, is a really, really interesting film. And in fact, I'm teaching a horror film class this semester and we're going to watch this. And um, th so the premise is well known. There are these seed pods from outer space that mm -hmm. get put under your bed and then basically it becomes you and you get dissolved away and you become part of this kind of what you're just you're talking about here, this sort of uh, collective consciousness. And there, the, one of the more disturbing things about that movie for me personally is the fact that it's kind of appealing <laughs> the uh, the uh, the life that these monsters are uh, trying to impose mm -hmm. upon us by taking away our individuality. I mean, everybody's happy, everybody's sort of calm and 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 taken care of, and it's it's it, that's what's kind of disturbing about it is the fact that it's not without its appeal. And so, uh, as you're talking about the 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 vision of collectivity in that foundation and earth book. Uh, this is sort of what's coming to my mind as well. I have not, I have, I admitted in the last um, episode, not read as much science fiction as I've seen films of. And so uh, mm -hmm. I'm at a ma major disadvantage here. So I will probably be referring to uh, far too few or far too few many pet texts. That's not even a phrase that I just made up there. But um, so um, I want to talk a little bit specifically about um, uh I don't know how to describe this. The kind of science fiction generically, like in terms of genre, that works well with um, theological questions. And you mentioned The Star, The Story of the Star by Arthur C. Right. Clarke. And I think this is one of them. And just can we talk a little bit in detail about that story? It's very short. It's only like four or five yeah. pages long. It's um, a, Let me just sum up the story. It's You have this uh, – it's basically a monologue by some – astronaut from earth who has discovered that the um the bethlehem star was the result of a, a supernova that destroyed this really wonderful civilization and he has this sort of religious crisis um about that knowledge and so can we talk a little bit about that story yeah the stars uh was a particular favorite i think um in terms of because it's a, a thought-provoking story of my colleague um, so I went back and I reread it for this episode because it's been a, about a year since I've read it. And, um, and a couple of things that I noticed. First of all, you know, Clark falls under the category of um, science fiction writers who are very much not uh, men of faith. Um, right. But 
he takes it seriously. Um, you know, his character is a Jesuit priest. He is a serious scientist who is intent on gathering um, a lot of evidence. And for a long time, apparently, he's been able to reconcile his um, scientific endeavors with his faith. And, you know, at the end of the story, um, he he never the main character never declares okay that's it i'm i'm definitely walking away you don't get the moment of decision and so there's even an impression that perhaps he will continue um to reconcile his faith in his science despite um this great tragedy and so i appreciate that clark takes um questions of faith uh seriously in in the novel um i there's it's also worth noting how very ambiguous it is um this is a story that does not offer um any any clear answers uh whatsoever in fact the the novel um novel the short story ends with with questions right uh this race could have taught us so much why were they destroyed question mark new paragraph there's no answer um the last sentence what need what was the need to give these people to the fire um spoiler alert that the symbol of their passing might shine above bethlehem um and that's it the story ends uh we're we're still looking for the question and this is incidentally this is something i think that sets really well done science fiction apart from not so well done science fiction. So earlier I mentioned that I I don't think that um, Off Armageddon Reef and David Weber's uh, work is very well done at all and for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is that it's, it's very doctrinaire. It's very mm-hmm. dogmatic. Um, religions impose a particular... Um, worldview on people they are always anti-scientific they are always opposed to knowledge this is the way religion is you need to follow your own path and your um you know a your own religious choice and i'm oversimplifying a little bit but it's a very doctrinaire um novel compared to to this one which asks a lot of questions um you know, the the main question that this story asks is how do we make sense of the suffering of the seemingly innocent? So again, spoiler alert, the um they journey out to this nebula. They discover that when the when the star I'm not, I'm an English teacher, not a scientist, it it went supernova, right? I believe that's what I gathered that's from right it. Term? Yeah. Okay, awesome. Um when the star went uh supernova, it destroyed um a, a beautiful planet with a beautiful race of people. They knew their end was coming and they left pictographs showing, you know, the families playing on the beach and um their their music and their scientific achievements and the priest slash scientists does all the calculations and he discovers that it was uh, the dis- death of this star, the destruction of this people. That was the light above Bethlehem. Why did God destroy this beautiful people so that we would know um, his son was born? Hmm. And how do we- so the, the big question is, how do we make sense of the suffering of the, the seemingly innocent? And the theme is not um, maybe there is no plan. It's maybe the plan is bad. Maybe maybe God is bad. What are we going to do with that? And the priest is torn. 
does he walk away or or not? And there aren't answers to that. The, the novel ends, the story ends um, without an answer. Although I was thinking about this as I, as I was preparing. Because, of course, when we think about the innocent being destroyed for, for the spiritual benefit of the people of Earth, well, that's what happened to Jesus. The, the story of these alien people is essentially a symbol for the gospel. And Asimov is asking, Asimov Clark is asking, <laughs> um, maybe our faith is a terrible one. This is a, a this is a notion that is so interesting to me right now. I've been reading. Um, There's a a, um, a theologian that I discovered on the um, oh, some podcast. What was it? Uh, some podcast I was listening to. I discovered this uh, theologian. I believe her name is Marika Rose. And one of the things that she keeps writing about is that to be a Christian isn't to sort of, I mean, you should, we shouldn't be trying to like paint every, the faith with rosy um, colors and, and look, look at it through rose colored glasses. You have to sort of acknowledge the, the pain <laughs> of the faith. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that, and, and the, 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 you have, you can't just, um, one of her claims is you can't just, um, ignore the fact that the crusades happened and, and trying to not associate yourself and your faith with that. You have to find a way to justify the faith you have with that bad event um, that, that happened uh, in the faith's past. And so I, I find that what you're just, the way you're talking about this story mm-hmm. kind of works with that in very interesting ways. Um, the, the act, the idea of sacrifice is um, uh, a very difficult one, um, but it's central to this faith and and um i hadn't thought of the story in that way uh you sort of have given me a new way to think about it that's that's excellent it was it was a new way for for me as well i hadn't seen the symbolism there with the um with the passion of christ until i reread it um on a on the original level though you know what is the point of suffering uh we paired the star with Russell's the sparrow and Russell was raised Catholic um, and she is a scientist by training and so she was um, atheist slash agnostic for much of her adult life and then you know later um, when she had children she converted to Judaism and she is a, a practicing Jew and she writes in the afterword to the novel um When you convert to Judaism in a post-Holocaust world, you know two things for sure. One is that being Jewish can get you killed. The other is that God won't rescue you. Um, Writing the Sparrow allowed me to look at the place of religion in the lives of many people and to weigh the risks and beauties of religious belief from the comfort of my own home. And I I like um, that phrase, the risks and beauties of religious faith, because Clark in the star is not a believer. Um, Russell is, and she tangles with the same question. Maybe the plan really isn't that great, but she kind of hangs on to her, to her faith. There's a very uh, compelling part right towards the end of the sparrow that I kind of wanted to contrast with, with the star. Okay. There are two priests talking. Um, they're Catholic priests. So the Russell is Jewish. 
uh, the the main characters are Catholic, and um, they're talking in light of the violence of the story. And um, the one priest uh, tells the other, "There's an old Jewish story that says in the beginning God was everywhere and everything, a totality." But to make creation, God had to remove himself from some part of the universe so something beside himself could exist. So he breathed in, and in the places where God withdrew, there creation exists. The other priest responds, so God just leaves, abandons creation? You're on your own, apes. Good luck. And then the first priest again. No, he watches, he rejoices. He weeps. He observes the moral drama of human life and gives meaning to it by caring passionately about us and remembering. And a third guy chimes in. Oh, yeah, that's Matthew 10, verse 29. Not one sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. But the sparrow still falls. And I think that, you know, as as men and women of faith, we can fall prey to oversimplifying our faith experience and oversimplifying um, what certain texts mean. And one of the things that science fiction um, with these religious motifs, whether it's written by religious people or not, does is it is it complicates things um, for us and forces us to to see the ambiguity in them that is so good i cannot believe i've never heard of this book um i mean i I do jewish studies sort of as my primary focus uh jewish american fiction and as a career i cannot believe i've never read this book but the passage you read and then the uh uh, the introduction to that is just so compelling to me uh, about the really kind of darkness that comes with the faith that we have to sort of deal with. You can't just ignore it uh, and sanitize your reading of scripture um, to, to make it not painful. And, and, uh, and that, that is so interesting to me. Um, Which is something that our students really resonated uh, with as well. Again, like in going back through my notes and some of the conversations I'd had with students, um, you know, they said that coming into the class and coming into this discussion, there's a little bit of coldness, emotional coldness towards suffering. Well, of course, God means this for good. Suck it up, cupcake. Yeah. And, you know, theologically and orthodox, theologically, we know, right, um, that God does mean everything uh, that happens to us um, for good. But on an emotional level, the star and the sparrow say, um, wrestle with this, um, mourn over this, God mourns over this. And um, that's that's really helpful, I think, in, in complicating that snap intellectual response with its answer, and its this, pat answer. This is another thing that occurred to me, the, the Jewish tale about God sort of vacating part of creation or part of the universe in order to make room for creation, something that wasn't him. Um, that is so, wow, that just has my brain sort of spinning. But it also kind of reminds me, this is how perhaps science fiction can function on this kind of ethical level, is that it looks at our actually existing world, but takes a bit of a moral distance from it. 
Um, and, mm-hmm. and I believe I'm sort of drawing on building on some of the wild goose stuff that we did in a couple episodes back. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, uh, uh, we're talking about the idea of stepping away from mm-hmm. culture and society in order to sort of view it, um, from a more ethical perspective. That doesn't mean you abandon it, uh, necessarily, but you're sort of, um, stepping away from it in order to kind of perfect it in a lot of ways. And so I think that, um, that, that folktale, Describing what God did um, in creation is really there's a parallel there, I think, for what science fiction does to the material world. And in fact, science fiction does push us forward as a, as a society. Uh, many inventions. I mean, I'm sure, of course, my mind is blanking right now, but there are uh, there is science and, and engineering that is done based on the reading of someone else's imagination. I mean, Jules Verne invented things that now exist <laughs> that didn't then, right? Um, but there's a, like an inspiration that comes from um, the activity that science fiction uh, is for one genre um, actually does in the world. Right, right. Um, no, that, that makes sense to me. There's a very, um, it's a very academic text. I... Um, it's very dense. It's, so I give that caveat before I recommend it. It's called The Seven Beauties of Science Fiction by Istvan Cisneri Ronan um, about how science fiction works. And he notes that because it is fiction, not science, science fiction is less concerned with validating the scientific materialist worldview than in playfully problematizing it, prodding it, prying open its contradictions, and in exploring its inconclusions. Um, using scientific rationality as its baseline, sci-fi plays with all totalizing worldviews that purport to explain everything. And that, that goes for... Um, for materialist and scientific worldviews as well as uh, worldviews of faith. Um, Science fiction is very much invested in asking the question, what if? And that applies to faith, as we've seen with Clark. You know, what if um, this religion is actually a terrible one? But it it also goes with, um, you know... uh, uh, the the technological worldview. What if the machines we create uh, come to destroy us? Uh, yeah. That's that's in a lot of uh, films and well, maybe the genesis of science fiction. If you look at Frankenstein, is is perhaps a, yeah, yeah. an urtext, right? I mean, that might be the, the controlling question of science fiction is to. Um, cast doubt on the things that we're so sure of uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> as being good as you know good citizens of the enlightenment as we are and and, yeah. and a story like the star is that we've been talking about I, I mean to try and imagine i mean can will you still serve god if he does things that you think are crappy right i mean this is the uh uh that's a, a that's a very challenging story <laughs> or, or question to ask um, I want to say that another work that gets into that um, is The Stand by Stephen King. Mm. I don't read a lot of horror, but um, King, The Stand is, it's literally just The Stand. I've also tried reading some other Stephen King and didn't care for it. Um, <laughs> well, if you've gotten through The Stand, you did. I try, I got about 600 pages in twice and I gave up. And so I... It, <laughs> It is a really long book, and um, some of 
portions of it are much better than others. Let's see if here it is. Um, Every man or woman who loves God, they hate him too, because he's a hard God, a jealous God. He is what he is. And in this world, he's apt to repay service with pain, while those who do evil ride over the roads and Cadillac cars. Even the joy of serving him is a is a bitter joy. And, you know, I would actually class The Stand as a novel, which um, it's been a couple of years since I've read it. So I, I can't be very specific about this. But my impression is that it actually um, supports a worldview of, of faith, mm-hmm. uh, good triumphs. It's not a, a pessimistic. I mean, it's a dark book, but it's not pessimistic. His his later book, Under the Dome, is extraordinarily pessimistic. Yeah, um, the stand is not, and but it's honest. Um, well, just uh, as you're moving to the next point, um, last time we were talking about how science fiction challenges, as you said, the sort of material. Um, idea of the goodness of progress uh, and, and right. science and scientific achievement. And we're seeing this week that it also challenges immaterial um, faith ideas. And, and so um, this has been a really nice companion <laughs> so far to that episode. Um, mm-hmm. um, I actually think incidentally that it's tendency of asking what if questions on its fictional qualities is one of the things that, that makes it a, a good training ground, a, a safe training ground, uh, so to speak, right? Because if, um, you know, as believers, it's important with the, that we wrestle with these questions. Uh, how do we as believers make sense of suffering in the world and a good God? This is something we should wrestle with. Um, Paul addresses it. Jesus addresses it. Um, but if we just kind of randomly raise the question in the middle of Wednesday night Bible study, <laughs> You know, you you panic people a little bit that way. Are you having a faith crisis? Is everything okay with you? And um, the fact that science fiction is fiction, that it's a step removed from the reality that we live in, is one of the things that makes it a safe way to to tangle with these these dangerous ideas um to practice your judo like uh you know um yeah yeah. (laughs) exactly so yeah i um so as we're talking here i feel like i've come to a a probably very simple philosophical assertion but just as science fiction does sort of inspire future um uh technological advancement uh people Mm -hmm. who are inventors love science fiction they read this stuff and it inspires them to go out and try to invent that thing hyperdrives or whatnot right um right. Be- because science fiction is challenging to the material world to the the material ideas of progress that's what gives it that possibility to inspire progress um, in the same way i feel like because it's challenging because it can be challenging if it's done well uh to questions of faith it can inspire faith to perfect itself uh both uh in in kind of a parallel fashion and so i'm very proud of myself for that so that that would be um you know to go back to the question we raised earlier about objectionable elements and object contrary worldviews right and science fiction this would be this would be um milton's argument right? right um virtue that is is blank and unchallenged is not a 
a strong virtue. Virtue is not the absence of sin, um, but a correct response to it. Right. Um, and so you you have to work through these things right. to to strengthen your faith. Billy Bragg says, "Virtue never tested is no virtue at all." Right. And so yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I gotta do a Billy Bragg episode. Um, Okay, um, so we've actually hit on most of my questions on some level or another, but I want to go ahead and pose the question uh, just as we're sort of running a bit out of time. Growing up in the church, I felt always somewhat odd and about consuming media like horror and sci-fi. Uh, there, I feel like there was like a censorious kind of impulse that seems to be lagging a bit these days, thankfully. Um, but can we come up with a really compelling reason for people of faith or just people who approach the world philosophically to look at this genre. I sort of stumbled through one just a minute ago. We we want to maintain purity and we want to maintain um, orthodoxy, and those are good desires to have. But you don't stay virtuous by shielding yourself um, from outside contaminants, you know, the little monkeys, um, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. <laughs> exactly. Especially the hear and see, you know, that's, that's not something that, um, that we can do because as scripture points out, evil rises from within us. Right. Um, and I think by encountering it in, in fiction, specifically in science fiction, um, with that step away from the real world that allows us to more, more comfortably deal with more potent themes, um, it can allow us the, the practice that we need to correctly deal with, with the remnants of the old man mm. inside of us. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, we might avoid the sparrow because we don't want to deal with the violence, but that's not going to to stop us from asking the question, is God good, when we face some kind of deep suffering in our own lives? And we're all going to face that, um, not all in, in the same way, but we're going to face it. And so the sparrow can, can prepare us to deal with that. Um, to give a another example... Um, you know, like I mentioned, a fire upon the deep. Um, you have these, gosh, it's been about a year since I've read it. Um, there is a set of characters on a spaceship, and um, these characters, I actually think it's the human race primarily that is being blamed for um, some uh, ash astronomical phenomenons that is essentially causing um the the galaxy to to collapse mm. inward um and the human race is being blamed for this and the other aliens are talking on vinge's version of the net and um, have formed a group that's very much um death to humans we're going to go out we're going to hunt them down we are going to chase them out of here and destroy them because they're to our society and you know, we don't have a a horse in the race. 
but we are dealing with a refugee crisis. Yeah. And reading Vinge's novel is a chance for us to empathize with the with the outcasts because it's human beings who are the outcasts and to practice a correct emotional response to that that's good that's really um relevant there was a bit of a a a glitch while you were talking but the relationship between uh it was a very small glitch there was a parallel between what the aliens were chasing the humans out out of fear um there's a parallel to the refugee crisis uh in our own world um, you want me to pick up from there? Or? Um, no, no, we we heard it all. Um, I just, okay, I just wanted I wasn't to sort sure of... what you meant about the book. So. <laughs> I, there was a small glitch. I just wanted to kind of paint the picture in case someone missed something. Um, okay. And so um, that's a another great – that's sort of another link to uh, the kind of social critique that uh, science fiction offers as well. Um, before we go, are there any sort of final things that you wanted to say about this genre before we get to recommendations? Perhaps something that I should have mentioned a little bit earlier was, you know, um, a book doesn't need to be explicitly um, explicitly religious or explicitly have these religious motifs in it in order to um, raise theological uh, questions. So we've talked a lot about the star and the sparrow, which very explicitly deal with questions of whether God is good. Um, Vinge, however, sets his entire, um, his entire story in a universe where religion just doesn't really enter into the question. Um, but that doesn't keep it from, from raising theological questions and how we human beings should relate to each other is, is still a, a theological question. If, you know, how we understand God and how we relate to his creation, including other human beings, um, is, is part of theology. There's an entire arm of theology, um, dealing with that. Asimov's, um, books, Asimov is not a believer, but foundation and earth, the question of, is there a plan, uh, behind it all? Are we going to self-destruct? How should we organize ourselves? Um, every time you raise these ideal questions, it's, it's still a, a theological, um, theological thought. Absolutely. And even with Asimov's, um, robot books as well, there is Mm. a, um, uh, there's sort of an ethical uh, meditation going on in those books with the sort of rules about robots that he comes up with. Um, and, and the, the idea of how do they relate to the human creation? Right. <laughs> and so, I mean, I feel like mm-hmm. it, um, at, or the, the creation that humans live in at least. Uh, and I feel like that even on a, maybe on a subtle level, he is sort of inescapably dealing with what are essentially theological questions. There was a, um, I am looking back at some of my notes here again. And when I first started talking about this class to other people, I went back and I found a section in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And um, you've got two characters, uh, Manuel and uh, Prof. And Manuel is describing um, Prof to us. And he says, ah, Prof was a, uh, and Prof, by the way, is working very much um, like Professor, Mm -hmm. is working very hard towards um, spurring war between the moon and earth here. And he says, huh, Prof was a pacifist. Like his vegetarianism, he did not let it keep him from being rational. Would have made a terrific theologian. (laughs) And um, 
what's implied there, I noted, is that reconciling reason and ideals is uh, the business of theology. And each of these novels um, is is invested in that. Um, you know, what is the ideal? That everybody in the universe will get along. Right. What is the reality? Somebody has caused a chain of events that is leading to massive destruction in the galaxy. How are we going to deal with that? Um, and and science fiction is very good at this, partly because it lives partly in the real world and partly in a in a fictional um, far future world. Yeah, it it it, it takes that stance of moral distance uh, from, from yeah mm -hmm. yeah exactly. Well, I want to get to recommendations here before we close up, and I want to start. Um, I want to start, and uh, I'll give you a couple of movies uh, that okay. I, that I think are worth looking at, and then I'll let you uh, if you have any recommendations beyond the excellent ones that you've already given us. Um, the first one is uh, maybe you might not have heard of. Uh, I, I saw it on Netflix. I don't know if it's still there. It's called Europa Report. Uh, it is a one of those sort of found footage genre movies where there's uh, lately, so. <laughs> there's a you know a, a crew going to the moon of Jupiter Europa and we know that they don't get back and somehow and, and the story is told with these punctuations of basically NASA telling these mm -hmm. people stories in a press conference and then we see footage that had been beamed back and that sort of comprises the movie and it is a really um, it, it's got elements, I mean, given that it's the found footage genre, it has elements of sort of the, the whole Blair Witch thing is, is um, mm -hmm. um, inescapable. But it also has a lot of elements of like 2001 and, and, and some more classical science fiction. And it has a really, even though it, it has a sad ending, I guess, typically, you don't feel sad because the act of scientific discovery is sort of how these people live on and, and it's so kind of moving at the end of the movie um, the way they sort of um, negotiate their own deaths uh, for progress mm. and, and for knowledge and, and it's so interesting and so and it's a really uh, a terrifically done example of that um, found footage genre which I don't have yeah. so much patience with um, these days but I thought that was a, an extremely excellent example of it so uh, if you could find that still on Netflix or wherever it's really worth watching and the other one uh, it's kind of a much maligned uh, movie of the last few years that I happen to think is worth looking at is Prometheus um, uh, for all of its narrative flaws which I, I grant it is asking very interesting philosophical questions about our place in creation and you know sort of yeah our tensious, uh, tension filled relationship with our creators. And so the, the questions that that film opens up and if I would recommend getting the Blu-ray, I have the Blu-ray and it has some, um, cut out scenes that actually make the movie make a lot more sense. And so <laughs> watch the movie, watch the cut out scenes and then, Oh, oh you'll appreciate it. I think a little bit more, but I do believe that it, it actually asks some really essential questions about who we are, and in relationship to our creators and, and our creator. And, and I think that it's a, it's a really interesting movie, despite all of its sort of narrative flaws, which I grant. Um, so those are the two uh, recommendations that I have. What about you, Megan? Um, well, to add on to the, you know, asking questions about who we are in relation to, to our creator, 
I would add um, Blomkamp's recent film, Chappie. Um, mm. It's not quite as good as District 9. Uh, oh, that was fantastic. It was, yeah. Um, but Chappie is very, very well done and, again, raises questions about what does it mean to be human? Um, do we make ourselves into who we want to be or um, are we are we programmed? Can we overcome bad programming? And you also see the move towards, um, towards the singularity, mm. uh, the idea that we are going to transcend our, our physical bodies and kind of live in the ether. Um, <laughs> So uh, Chappie's good. It's got um, a, a cousin and I agreed. It's got some very funny scenes in it too, um, as the as the robot uh, kind of learns to become human. Uh, yeah. Some excellent oh. settings there. Well, that's interesting. And and oh, go ahead. Um, District Nine. Speaking of the refugee crisis, I mean this movie is yes. is one of the most powerful meditations on that I think you can watch. So um, I had no idea that he followed that up with something else. So I, I will look into that. Thank you. Yeah, Chappie was Chappie was great. I would also recommend Ex Machina, um, which is a really good film that came out like spring 2016, I guess, mm-hmm. and also raises some of these questions about our created nature, but perhaps also um, the questions about what our responsibility is uh, towards our creation and a little bit of about how we distinguish between um, reality and illusion Mm. um, and who's really in control. Um, I've seen previews of this and it really does look uh, intriguing and it is um, already on my list at some point once I get the semester planned. um, I will sit down with that one as well. Um, Yeah, I will tack tack a, you know, viewer discretion onto both of those they are both rated r so um your mileage your mileage may vary depending on (laughs) um what you are and are not comfortable seeing but good enough they're good enough i I suspect most people in our audience will 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 suck it up and uh they'll make their way through it uh megan uh, i really appreciated this this was such a fun conversation i Thank you so much for contacting the show and for participating. I had a book recommendation I wanted to throw in there too. Go right ahead. Um, we we've already mentioned a lot that I that I really love: um, the Sparrow and Canticle and A Fire Upon the Deep. I did not get around to M. T. Anderson's Feed, and this is some might consider it a young adult novel. Certainly, its character, its main character, is a teenager. But if you're thinking about the move towards the singularity and, you know, what humans are capable of, whether we can overcome um, our, our, our sin nature, so to speak, feed is excellent. The feed referred to is not like, like grain, like I pictured it um, when I first heard about the novel, but feed like a Facebook feed or the internet. It's set in a time when we essentially have the internet um, embedded in our, in our brains. It essentially takes our world now and jumps perhaps 50 to a hundred years into the future and says, what is going to happen when we continue our, our consume, consumerism our um, idea that everything is expendable our dependence on on having things now 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 how is that going to change our nature how are we going to deal with it it 
probably touches a lot on your um, sci-fi social criticism too. Um, but it's very, it's very worth uh, reading. So that sounds so interesting. And as you're talking about, you know, the internet being embedded in our brains, I, I feel like Pokemon Go puts us <laughs> yes. one step towards that. <laughs> I feel like when our robot overlords look write their own history, that will sort of be year one <laughs> for, for how they took over everything. <laughs> but uh, I don't I know if you're... a very low data plan, so I have resisted the lure of Pokemon Go, but <laughs> I, I know to. people who play it, so... Yeah, my town that I live in, uh, every evening there's this old prison in town that's like a... Like a looks like a castle or something, and okay. uh, everyone gathers around it in the evening and then goes off and finds little Pikachu's or whatever they're doing. I don't know. So, yeah, it's a uh, it's nice to see people outside, but you know, I wish their faces weren't blue from looking into a screen. So, um, well, Megan, thank you so much again for a uh, contacting the show, listening to the show, and uh, and and suggesting this, and then b agreeing uh, to be on the show with us. I had a lot of fun. I feel like I learned a, a ton of stuff, and I had so many just mind-blowing like realizations about how fiction uh augments our reality in, in really positive ways i really um am very grateful for you uh agreeing to join us here today my pleasure i've been enjoying listening to the podcast um i took it with me on some long road trips this summer and i loved it so and any chance to talk about science fiction is <laughs> is a is great so and, and thanks I think, for having me. No, no. And I think I forgot to mention you are an acquaintance of Jordan, right? Is that how you uh, came to know us? Yes. Um, we knew each other at college. Yes. That's, so. that's what I, I mentioned uh, you to him when last time we recorded and he, and he remembered. So, um, so yeah. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. And any of you all, all listening to us still, um, do the same. Like feedback or give us some feedback on the show. Push back on things that we uh, – messed up and add to things that we missed. Uh, that's what I really love about this. The Facebook page is always there for that. Don't forget the iTunes uh, rating system. That's a way for more people uh, like Megan to, to find us and to hopefully join in, in the conversation as well. Uh, and in the meantime, um, have a great week and we'll see you next time.